Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes all the way live from his childhood bedroom. Uh, but this time, uh, as a New York Times bestseller, again, congratulations. I, mean, I got to thank all the worlders out there. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been, I mean, it feels like this book came out about a year ago, but it's only been a couple weeks. Um, we clocked in at number three on the, the combined New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I'm a little pissed that O'Reilly was a spot ahead of you. I think there's still time I mean, for the worlders to remedy that. I was going to say, uh, look, to, if people thought we were harping too much on Bill O'Reilly, like came in right after him, he was number two, killing the mob. Congrats to, to Clint Smith for, for, yes. you know, taking out the king there, um, taking <laughs> yes. the first slot. Um, but yeah, we were just, just behind. We, we got time. We got time. I mean, we got time. I also, know. it hurt. At the, at the end of the show today, we're going to have an excerpt from Ben's audio book. So stick around for that at the end of the show. Also, yeah, Ben, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Clint Smith's book, uh, How the Word is Passed. It, it was number one on the list. Just a thought for listeners. So Juneteenth is coming up on June 19th. There's a chapter in Clint's book where he goes to Galveston, Texas, where Juneteenth originated. He participates in this Juneteenth ceremony. It's really like one of the most moving parts of the book. It helped me better understand the holiday uh, itself. So I, I highly, highly recommend it. And also just like credit to him. He's part of the yeah. Crooked Media family and just like an yeah. unbelievably good guy. I love talking to him a couple weeks Honored ago. Honored to be behind that guy. Uh, yeah. Not happy to be behind Bill O'Reilly, but hey, I'll, you know, I can't complain. Yes. Well, look, next time that list comes out, uh, O'Reilly's going to be way behind <laughs> both of you. Uh, we have an amazing show today, Ben. We have Joe Biden's first foreign trip. And what the media wants us to believe is a huge showdown with Vladimir Putin. So we'll we'll learn about that. We get to say bye-bye, Bibi Netanyahu. That makes my heart grow two sizes. Uh, there's already a new prime minister uh, in government in Israel. We have threats against K-pop, some great news about efforts to eradicate a horrible disease. And then we'll end by having some fun, by making fun of two of the biggest assholes on the international stage. We'll make the world does here wait to see who it is. Uh, and then I talked with Yair Rosenberg from Tablet Magazine. He's going to help all of us understand who is in this new Israeli government, what it means for the U.S., what it means for the Palestinian people. He's just the nicest guy, so smart, knows everything about what's going on, and it really helped me. Um, one quick plug, Ben, in addition to everyone who needs to buy your book if they haven't already. This week on Pod Save the People, DeRay and the crew talk all about the history and the importance of Juneteenth. Pod Save the People is a fantastic show every week. It is essential listening this week, so subscribe and listen to Pod Save the People wherever you get your Podcasts. Um, ben, Joe Biden is abroad as we speak on his first foreign trip. That is, it's been exciting to watch, bringing back some fun memories of how brutal those things are. The, I mean, they were my favorite part of the job, as hard as they were. Uh, and so I, I have to admit, like, it was, it was kind of uh, like, I haven't felt much FOMO this entire time. But uh, it's great to see, like, America with a bunch of decent people I know. who are trying to do the right thing. 
uh, representing them uh, on the world stage. So it's been good. To, it's been good to watch and it's brought back all kinds of memories. Too. Yeah. And the reception was as good as you thought it would be. So Biden had meetings with the G7 leaders in the UK. He hung out with Queen Elizabeth at Windsor Castle. He went to Brussels to meet with the NATO alliance uh, and European Union leadership. And he had a one-on-one -on -one with President Erdogan of Turkey. Uh, we record this on Tuesday afternoon. On Wednesday, Biden is going to meet with Vladimir Putin. So Ben, I think we maybe just take this in, in reverse chronological order and start with this Putin meeting in Geneva. Um, it was interesting to me at, at Biden's press conference yesterday, where he said that all these NATO leaders he talked to were actually happy that he's meeting with Putin. I think the conventional wisdom going in was maybe they'd be upset. Um, the last time a US president met with Putin was in 2018, which was the disaster in Helsinki that we all remember with Donald Trump. So the US media is just completely obsessed with this meeting. The first three questions at Biden's uh, post-NATO press conference were about the Putin meeting. All of them were multiple parts, so I guess you could call it six questions. Time magazine uh, put Biden and Putin on the cover, which would have been a huge deal in 1998. Um, the, issues, <laughs> the, the issues they'll talk about are obviously important, right? Like hacking, Ukraine, arms control. The question, I guess, is like, what can you reasonably expect him to accomplish in a meeting? The Biden team is lowering expectations, including in your very excellent interview with John Finer last week. Like, what do you think is the best case outcome for the meeting? And then, like, I don't know, how do you build on it afterwards? I mean, we talked to, to Finer last week about just first of all, why are they having a meeting? Um, and I think their judgment coming in was probably that. You know, Russia had done a whole bunch of shit to us, the solar winds attack, the interference in our election. They detained Navalny. That's not to us, but that's something we don't like. Um, and then Biden had done a whole bunch of sanctions in response. And I think they wanted the meeting to kind of test whether they could just stop this spiral mm -hmm. where it felt like we were on the precipice of like ever escalating cyber wars and trading sanctions and the rest of it. I think, unfortunately, like even since they announced the meeting, Putin's pretty much indicated that he's not going to change. You had the Belarus airliner <laughs> diverted, uh, which the Russians were clearly involved in. You've had more ransomware attacks, you know, reportedly from within Russia. You've had Putin doing media tours where he like, you know, echoes right wing talking points about Joe Biden being old and January 6th being like a like a hang at the Capitol. Um <laughs> So I think like, look, the best case scenario is that there's a symbolic value in the American president being seen to kind of stand up to Vladimir Putin and deliver a bunch of tough messages on a bunch of stuff. It kind of puts the final period on the America's backstage of the Biden foreign policy. Um, I think there are some areas where they might you know, want to at least explore, can we make some progress? They want to keep a border open into Syria to provide humanitarian aid to refugees and displaced people there. And the Russians can block that. They want to start some kind of discussion around arms control and nuclear weapons that yeah. kind of fell by the wayside um, under Trump. They very much want to enlist the Russians into some discussion about nations being responsible for stopping ransomware and cyber attacks from within their borders. Putin is obviously going to resist that, but they want to at least get a dialogue going. They want the Russians to be constructive in, in trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. So there's stuff where like they could come out of this with some cooperation, but like it's not, I mean, it's not going to change the fundamental negative orientation of US-Russian relations. It's not going to change Vladimir Putin's behavior after 20 years. I mean, part of what's difficult about all this media hype is that, you know, it 
like it it sets up that this is going to be some sea change when it's not it's going to be right you know a chance for the, these two guys to sit face to face and tell each other what they think and hopefully you know prevent worse outcomes <laughs> but i i don't think you're going to see some dramatic breakthrough or or some dramatic you know fight is not going to be like a punch up at the summit you know so yeah I, I think even though we're taping this before i think we have a pretty good idea where it's headed yeah, I think you're right. And also like reinvigorating the NATO alliance is is going to be, you know, maybe the most important part of Biden's approach to Russia. Uh, I saw, you know, the narrative going into some of these NATO meetings was that maybe a bunch of countries were pissed off about Biden's decision to pull all U.S. troops uh, out of Afghanistan in September. I didn't see a ton of that in the, the post-summit cover, to be honest. Um like you said earlier, like Biden clearly benefited from the contrast with Trump, who yeah. went into this the last summit calling NATO obsolete. He refused to mention Article Five in his first <laughs> NATO speech, which is like you know, the crux of the entire thing. Uh, the he berated the, yeah. yeah, it's the whole deal. He corrupt, yeah. he berated them about defense spending, right? So, the two major storylines I saw coming out of NATO were one. NATO's first real recognition that China's military and cyber capabilities now pose a threat. And two, there was briefly some confusion about whether Ukraine had been formally admitted into NATO. Yeah. That was wrong. Biden made clear in his press conference that no, nothing had changed. Ukraine still needs to meet a bunch of criteria around the corruption and rule of law and professionalizing its military before they can be admitted. Um, Ukrainian President, uh, President Zelensky, expressed some, I think, uh, fair frustration at that process and said he just like wants a yes or a no. So Ben, two questions. One, how significant do you think this China piece is, like China being mentioned in this NATO communique? And then two, given the fact that Russia and Ukraine are like literally in a low-grade war as we speak and have been for yeah. years, does the international community really think it's a good idea to admit Ukraine into NATO right now if we are going to affirm Article 5 of the, the NATO charter, which says an attack on one is an attack on all? Yeah. I mean, look, I, first of all, like the sequencing of this is very intentional, right? Like go to the UK, yeah. you're meeting with like the core beating heart of the democratic world. And then you're going to NATO and meeting with like the bigger security lines of the democratic world. And then with all this backup, you're going to go in and deliver these messages to Putin. On the Ukraine thing, so people know the background, Ukraine and Georgia were offered what's called membership action plans during the Bush administration. Um, and this was even then seen as quite provocative. You know, three Baltic republics, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, that had been a part of the former Soviet Union had already come into NATO. And, and these were two countries that you know, were clearly going to be provocative in terms of extending this invite vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I don't need to tell you that because since those member act, membership action plans are offered, Russia has invaded and occupied parts of both of those countries. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, like an animating force of everything about Vladimir Putin has basically been, these two countries are not going to go into NATO. And I think that the awkward truth here no matter how much you care about Ukrainian sovereignty, and we should, and Ukraine's ability to choose its own relationships, is it, Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all, and you have to mean it. You, you know, if, if suddenly you're taking in countries where you know, you're not sure if you'd go to war to defend them, the whole purpose of the alliance collapses. And let's face it, do Americans want to go into World War III I mean, Russia's in Ukraine right now. The right. logic of them being in NATO is that we would go to war with Russia right. because they're there. And and so that this is the awkward dance that Biden has to act like we're still open to this. But I think commonsensically people know like this is not happening anytime soon. You know, 
Um, but you don't want to kind of totally withdraw it because you don't want to look like you're caving to the Russians. Um, but you also don't want Zelensky to be out there saying, oh, yeah, it's all done. We're coming into NATO. So we've got to be careful about this. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a d- d- difficult balancing act. The China thing, look, I think it was important that it, the G7 China was on, on, on the agenda. I think at NATO, it's important for them to kind of be noting it as they kind of did in the, the communique mm-hmm. as something that the alliance is going to have to think about. But like, I'm a little wary of like saying to NATO, OK, now like we're out of Afghanistan. We're dealing with the Russians over here, but but now we're going to like get ready for the next conflict with China. Um, let's take one step at a time here. <laughs> like we got to get out of Afghanistan. We got to fortify Europe and Eastern European security in the face of Russia. We got to think about cyber challenges. Yeah. Got to think about the Mediterranean and the Aegean, where there's a lot of uh, activity related to counterterrorism. And um, and so, I, 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 introducing China is something that is discussed at NATO summits. I think it makes sense, but. But the idea that like NATO is going to be patrolling the South China Sea here, like that's let's let's calm down there too, you know. So, <laughs> like I think that what the Biden team is trying to do is shape the agenda for all these institutions going forward. Like these are going to be things that we need to talk about, and I think that's right. I wouldn't over crank the China piece. Yeah, I think that's 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 well put. So we'll close with the G seven. So um, on Monday's Pod Save America, we talked a bit yeah. about the frustration from activists that G seven countries didn't do more to commit to helping uh, developing countries get COVID vaccines and uh, you know do more on climate change, specifically hastening the transition away from coal fired power plants. So you know, given the urgency of, of both those problems, I think it's obviously fair to want more. I bet Biden's team agrees, and they're really focused. You know, when it comes to climate, on that big uh, next climate change summit in November. Uh, Ben, like I think Brexit was hanging over the entire summit. Uh, Biden and apparently President Macron of France pushed Boris Johnson really hard on issues around Brexit in Northern Ireland. The UK itself is struggling to reopen because of an uptick in COVID cases. Again, like the change in tone really did help gloss over, I think, a lot of the substantive challenges. But what did you make of the G7? Like success, failure, TBD? So I thought the most interesting thing um, is... I mentioned this when Biden gave his speech to Congress uh, when he shifted to foreign policy, like he didn't mention terrorism for a while. I was struck by just the agenda of the G7 was a totally different agenda than anyone we've seen before. The agenda was COVID. It was climate change. It was China. It was democracy. It was anti-corruption. All these things that, you know, we've been talking about on this podcast for a few years, like that is now what the agenda is for the world's democracies. And that Mm -hmm. is important and new. To have the U.S. kind of emphasizing that set of issues. Um, I mean, we obviously did some of this in the Obama years, but I mean, you really didn't see the Middle East and terrorism front and center in the ways that that has been the case in the past. I think that's good. And that's a space to watch. That means the U.S. and all these multilateral institutions is kind of going to be focused on a post post 9-11 foreign policy for really the first time. I think on the scale, the ambition, like, like people are right to, to push. I think on each one, Part of this is it's early days. I think on climate, the Europeans are like, well, what are you guys really going to do, you Americans? Yeah. Like, like we have, I mean, the, the, we're, we're back, you know, as, as we keep saying and hearing. But like, what is our bill going to be that passes through Congress? Like the biggest thing America can do to reduce our emissions in the near term is pass the most ambitious climate bill possible. And, you know, it's not clear whether that stuff is going to get sacrificed on the altar of bipartisanship. Um you know, so I, I think it's just going to take until that summit uh, in Glasgow later in the year before we know 
kind of how ambitious the U.S. can be with our target, which is part of how we get other nations to be more ambitious. Right. I do think the Biden team is going to have to deliver. They've raised a lot of expectations that we're going to lead the fight against uh, vaccine inequity, against climate change, and kind of promoting a like a, a global foreign policy for the middle class, like like minimum taxation. A lot of these things are commitments without you know the substance behind them yet. That's to be expected when it's June of your first year in office. But I mean, they've they've kind of set the report card for themselves. Like, are they going to be able to to elevate the ambition on climate? Are they going to be able to elevate the ambition in getting rid of coal? They're going to be able to elevate the the global minimum tax. And and we'll see. And and I mean, we should be rooting for that. Yeah, totally rooting for it. It was it was good to see that. You know, I think Pew Research did a poll. Uh, of 12 foreign countries. And in some of them, you know, America's favorability was up by as much as 30 points. But the flip side of that was majorities, and I think all of the countries surveyed, or at least most of them expressed concern about the state of America's democracy itself. So no surprise there as to why. Um, Ben, this is old news now, but did you see the story about the cicadas swarming the engine of the press charter and delaying their departure time? I did. I did. I did. Uh, (laughs) that press charter is it's the subject of more drama. It's um, so cursed. Uh, it's it's it, yeah it's yeah it was cursed on our first foreign trip. Uh, wasn't oh, it grounded yeah. for days by a, a malfunction yes. or something? Yes. So like just so everyone knows, like a lot of the foreign trips, right? You have reporters on Air Force One. That's the pool. It's a smaller group. Then the White House charters a separate plane to take the rest of the press corps like ahead. I was often manifested on that plane. Um, and it means you get up at god awful times, you land hours and hours early and just like sit there and wait. And you know, sometimes it can work out in your favor. Like that time you just mentioned, Ben, the plane broke down and we got stuck in Istanbul for like an extra day. So I got to do Hagia Sophia, the Blue Mosque, like all the cool things. Another time we had to kill, I think, 10 hours at the W Hotel in Bali while you guys were all still uh, at the summit at the end of a long yeah, swing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That you know, was it cuts better, both ways. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to do a very quick explainer, Tommy, on something in your wheelhouse, which is why all these questions at the press conferences are so annoyingly the same, right? Because mm-hmm. you, like you said, it's like three or four questions in a row that's the same question about Putin. And it's because they often call on the TV reporters all of whom want to be seen on television asking, like, do you think he's a killer? You know, and so yep. they're repeating these questions in ways that is super annoying, given how much other stuff there's to talk about. That said, um, as, as frustrated as I would be by the dominance of the Putin coverage, if I was in the White House, if you put a big old Putin summit at the end of your trip, <laughs> like you're going to get a lot of people asking these questions. You know? Yeah, that, that's uh, exactly right. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. 
right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Um, all right, we are going to shift gears to uh, our friend Bibi Netanyahu. I'm a little uh, upset to see, Ben, that there is just a breaking news alert that Israel is launching airstrikes into Gaza, according to Palestinian security sources. So maybe we'll be able to track that as we go here. But that's very bad news. But let's stick to the good news. So at long last, Bibi Netanyahu is no longer the prime minister of Israel. He was prime minister for 15 years, including the last 12 in a row. Now he's just another racist, corrupt, authoritarian member of parliament. And that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. um, on Sunday night, the Knesset voted in the new government by a single vote, 60 to 59. It was so close that one lawmaker had to leave her hospital bed, vote, and then go back to the hospital. Uh, Netanyahu supporters decided to go out in the most obnoxious, childish way possible. They heckled the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, during his speech. Uh, Netanyahu himself delivered a speech where he pledged to, quote, lead you in a daily battle against this bad and dangerous left-wing government and bring it down, end quote. He also bragged about giving the finger to the United States, saying, the Biden administration asked me not to make our disagreements on the Iran nuclear deal public. With all due respect to President Biden, I refused. He then compared returning to the Iran nuclear deal to the decision by FDR not to bomb the train tracks that led to Auschwitz in 1944. Mm. Just a truly disgusting and offensive comparison and one that makes me just pissed off all over again at the big brains in Washington who say the United States can't ever criticize Bibi Netanyahu publicly when he's like comparing the JCPOA yeah. to the, the Holocaust. Uh, anyway, Ben, I know I shouldn't gloat. Because that's some coalition. loud, intense diplomacy there. <laughs> that's some loud. That's what, I, 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 I will try not to gloat. I'm already gloating. This thing's fragile. BB is like the monster at the end of a horror movie. He comes back. But like yeah. any parting thoughts, any parting words for Mr. Netanyahu? And, and we'll talk uh, much more about the new government coalition in my interview with Yair Rosenberg. So stick around for that. I mean, the, the takeaways that offer that I think are slightly different than what I've said before about this creep. Um, you know, one vigilance is required like he's still there in the same way that yep. trump is still there like in the same way that he's become even more radicalized on the way out just like trump did with all of his batshit crazy allegations and offensive remarks uh, number two like i i think it's interesting how you know looking at the full scale and breadth of this opposition it made me realize like this is a tactic we're seeing in more and more countries like in hungary you know which i obviously write about in my book like the entire opposition put this big umbrella over them, you know, mm -hmm. from a former far right party to the socialist party to some kind of centrist uh, uh, parties. Yeah. Because they're like, you know what? We all agree we have to get rid of this guy and then yep. we can fight it out amongst ourselves. And I think that's a very healthy tactic and it's necessary. Yeah. It's, by the way, the same thing kind of the Democratic Party did here. It's not like AOC endorsing Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Right. So I think lesson to be learned. Right. Remain vigilant but, you know, unifies an opposition to get rid of the corrupt autocrat. 
I'll be watching like whether he's convicted. I mean, I think that like part of the hope of this new government is that like BB can actually be convicted of the, all the yep. crimes he's been indicted for. And then that might more permanently settle things in terms of his role um, in Israeli politics. I think the Republican Party's kind of full blending together with BBism and the Likud Party and, and Israel was like fully completed for me when I saw like Nikki Haley like tweeting out photos with like that that nut job evangelical preacher guy John Hagee and, oh, and BB calling him Prime Minister Netanyahu and there's no longer Prime Minister in his residence, which he I don't know how he's still like hanging out in the Prime Minister residence. Yeah. So like the the Republican Party's embrace of this again, this is garbage. The the, the guy on the way at the door pra- bragged about bashing the Democratic president who was very careful to say he would never criticize BB publicly. Like we do, like let's just. Let's be able to criticize a government that does things that we disagree with at times. And if these reports about Gaza are true, I mean, it's a sign that nothing really changed for the Palestinians. And you even saw this new government approve a, a, a far right like protest march through Jerusalem, not really protest, kind of a like a, a, incitement, a, like a yeah. provi- incitement march, basically. Um, so, you know, the Hamas had said they would respond to that. Hopefully, Cooler heads prevail, and hopefully the need to have consensus in this government uh, hold, moderates it to some extent. But um, but yes, let's enjoy Bibi Netanyahu being gone. Recognize that a lot of people worked very hard against long odds to to accomplish at least that, and and then we can enjoy that, and then hope Israelis take the next step. Yeah, agreed. And, and Yair had, um, you know, like a, a not at all naive, but like hopeful take on on how things could get better, how you could see more air participation in politics, a more moderate coalition than what anything you'd see under Netanyahu. So uh, we'll see. And obviously, we'll be tracking this news. Um, but let's turn to Nigeria, uh, because on June 4th, the Nigerian Ministry of Information announced that the government had suspended Twitter operations in the country after Twitter froze Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari's account and deleted one of his tweets that was interpreted by many as a threat of genocide against an ethnic group. That seems like a very good reason uh, to delete a tweet. Twitter has been an important tool for activists in Nigeria who want to raise awareness about issues like police brutality. They want to organize protests. They want to connect with each other. Uh, so this suspension is really a big deal for them. And they could now be prosecuted if they you know, use a VPN and find some way to tweet, which many of them are doing. Because our former president is a selfish arsonist, he decided to weigh in on this matter on his sad little website. And he congratulated Nigeria for banning Twitter. He also encouraged other countries to ban Twitter and Facebook for quote, not allowing free and open speech, all voices should be heard. Then if irony wasn't dead, I would point out the irony of a ban on social media for not allowing free speech. But alas, irony has been dead since 2016. So I will not. So Trump also called these two American companies, uh, Facebook and Twitter evil. He said he might have banned them too, except quote, Zuckerberg kept calling me and coming to the White House for dinner, telling me how great I was. 2024? Question mark. Anyway, Ben, do you think that this, I believe. That I believe. That, that I do believe too. Yeah, that uh, I totally believe. <laughs> so two questions for you. Do you think this kind of ban is tenable uh, in Nigeria? I, and, and like, what's the impact, do you think, of a former president of the United States cheerleading a crackdown uh, on free speech uh, and activists like this? Well, I think what, what's most dangerous to take the second one is that, you know, Trump and these guys like who rail against Twitter and we saw Modi um, kind of harassing yep. Twitter and, and Facebook as well. Um, they, they, they don't do it because they think they're getting a raw deal. They, they, they do it because they know they're getting the best deal possible, which is 
guys like Trump and Modi, you know, can flood Twitter with their trolls and disinformation and then charge that you're stifling free speech if you like remove something that is promoting an insurrection in this country or, (laughs) you know, a genocide in Nigeria. Why about cancel culture? They're not doing that because they actually believe free speech is being constrained. They're doing that to intimidate these platforms from taking any stand against the kind of authoritarian garbage and disinformation flood that like runs across these platforms. Uh, And so I think Trump contributing to that kind of global normalization of the idea that the authoritarians get to choose what free speech is and the platforms have to accept that reality. And the rest of us just have to live in a world in which, you know, a whole swath of society is being like, you know, spoon fed mainlined garbage. Like that's bad. (laughs) That, um, I think Nigeria taking this step too, it's not, you know, Nigeria is the biggest country in Africa. It's kind of a bellwether. So part of what you worry about is both discourse in Nigeria, but also other countries kind of following suit. At the end of the day though, and this is something we'll have to pull the thread on, you know, over the course of the the year, Tommy, on this podcast, like these platforms are going to have to make choices at a certain point. Like, are they actually going to police certain types of content on on their platforms? In which case they probably will be kicked out of certain countries. Mm-hmm. Or are they going to kind of allow their platforms to be manipulated like this? And, and I have to say, like, at the end of the day, at some point, they're going to have to get to a place where they lose some market access because they're actually trying to do the right thing. Uh, I would also hope that, you know, taking away Twitter in a massive country like Nigeria with a huge discourse creates some pressures from within Nigeria for them to restore Twitter because like that can't be a particularly popular thing either. So like some of these battles are going to be fought within countries. Some of these battles are going to be fought between the platforms and governments. But I think the basic principle has to be we are for free and open debate, but there's certain kinds of incitement and certain kinds of disinformation that has clearly been incredibly corrosive to democracy everywhere and to like a healthy functioning societies everywhere. And I'd rather see the platform start to take that on than just kind of fold whenever they get brushed back by an authoritarian or, or a kind of quasi-authoritarian, in this case, leader. Yeah. I mean, especially something that was viewed as a threat of genocide against an ethnic group. I mean, we, we saw what happened when that kind of content was allowed to stay up in Myanmar. There were literally yeah. devastating consequences. Many people died, um, really horrible outcomes. Um, okay. Some uh, exciting news for you, Ben. So some very rare very good uh, disease-related news for you after a year of pandemic. So scientists in Indonesia, they figured out a way to drastically reduce the transmission of dengue fever by infecting mosquitoes with a bacteria that then prevents the mosquitoes from getting infected by the dengue virus. I will not pretend for one second to understand how this works, but the results of a trial uh, in a city in Indonesia reduced the incidence of dengue among humans by 77%, so just enormous success. The World yes. Health Organization uh, describes dengue fever as one of the top 10 threats to global health, and it infects an estimated 390 million people every year. Uh, there's also evidence that this method could, could work against the Zika virus. It could work against uh, yellow fever. So it truly could be a game changer and turn the mosquito from like a lethal human killing machine to just like an annoying pain in the ass when there's one in your room. So just great, great news. Yeah. And and look, dengue fever sucks. Uh, I've never had it, but I know a bunch of people who have, including people who got it on, on White House trips that we took mm-hmm. to places like Southeast Asia. It really messes you up. It can really slow you down. It can really sap your energy. And that leads to the point that like, 
not only is this great for health, but in some nations, it's like a productivity issue. Right? Yeah, it's like a really people, economic issue. Yeah, it's an economic issue because like there's such crippling dengue fever, and that is such an impact on people's capacity. If you're talking about like an agricultural economy, or you know, uh, like people having to to put in a hard day's work, like when they just they can't with dengue fever, um, and it also shows like. I hope that one of the things as we're we're looking at the G7 and pumping money into pandemic preparedness, just investing globally in health security, which is something we began doing the Obama administration. But like we should be finding ways, even as we're arguing about like the origins of COVID, like to be working to the World Health Organization, working with groups of other countries, investing in ways to, to cure these diseases, because the positive impact, not just in lives saved, but economic productivity and quality of life. Is so, the upside is so high. And, and, and I think what we've seen, look at the, our own vaccine effort, like just surging some resources to get to that vaccine, like got it much faster than people thought. Like if we, yep. if we put that kind of concerted effort and resourcing globally into fighting a whole range of these diseases, like a lot of good can come out of, of that effort. Yes. Yes. Imagine if we had another two, three, four years until we had a vaccine. It's, it's, I can't even imagine it. It's too, yeah. it's too awful. Um, Super quick update. So last week, uh, Ben and I talked about the election that was happening in Peru. It was a socialist first-time candidate against this corrupt right-wing former like first lady candidate. So with nearly all the results in, uh, Pedro Castillo, the socialist candidate, has won. So congrats to him. Congrats to the people of Peru. The very hard uh, governing choices come next, but just wanted to give everybody a quick update on that one. Yeah, and and be you know fascinating to see like someone elected on a pretty far left platform. Um, with in basically a 50-50 country. Uh, and, and in his initial comments, he's kind of tried to thread the needle, like saying reassuring things, like I'm not going to upend the entire system while also saying he's going to transform Peru. And so be interesting to watch how he does, you know, but it, yeah. it's again, further sign of the thing, things moving left down there. Um, uh, and, and also, you know, watch how democracy, you know, how resilient democracy is in Peru going forward too. Yes. Um, okay. This is a little worse news. Kim Jong-un is coming for pop culture again. This, uh, this time, pisses me off so much. Yeah. This time it's K-pop. I know, man. Just, so look, just, yeah. first of all, K-pop is powerful, so he better watch his ass. But yeah. uh, Kim Jong-un, he called it a vicious cancer. He said it's corrupting the entire hairstyles and speeches uh, and behavior of young North Koreans. The New York Times reported that in recent months, Kim has ranted about South Korean movies and music like almost every day. Last year, North Korea passed a law that could get you five to 15 years in a forced labor camp if you're caught with like South Korean media videos, you know, thumb drives with shows on it, whatever. Ben, here's my question for you. Uh, he sounds a little scared here. Do the Scorpions yeah. need to record a song in Korean? Are we like a K-pop wind of change away from reunifying the peninsula? I, I I mean, it, look, it, it shows goes to show, right? Like the what he knows is that you know people Koreans love K-pop, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that includes North Koreans as well as South Koreans. And like the you know, it's always I've always believed that in these circumstances of like just diametrically opposed political systems and and foreign policy, like the the biggest vulnerability is often cultural. Because people are like looking at K-pop and they're like, well, that looks like a pretty good deal over there. Yeah. What's, what is the society and political model that allowed them to create that, you know? Um, and it's not about nuclear weapons. It's not about America. It's just about like, hey, these are other Koreans like doing this incredible thing that is totally changing global culture that I want to be a part of, right? Yeah. 
And and you would think that, yeah, that would make Kim Jong-un a little nervous because if you've seen the North Korean kind of film industry, you know, like, like Kim Jong-un on horseback, it, let's just say that's not going to hit it with the demo no. as, as well as like BTS's, you know? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, like jokes aside, I mean, the fact that people are willing to risk 15 years in a forced labor camp to watch a movie is a real indication of the power of art and culture. It's also an interesting story, I think, about the degree to which a totalitarian state can control what its public consumes in 2021, right? Like China is trying to do this through these incredibly high-tech means. North Korea is going old school and they're just trying to ban stuff. But this New York Times piece, uh, it noted that a lot of North Korean propaganda describes South Korea as like a hellhole full of yeah. people begging on the streets, like searching for food. Yeah. But if you watch these like South Korean, I guess, soap opera type things, yes. like North Koreans were learning about how people in yes. South Korea were going on diets to get in shape at a time when there was a famine in the North. So it really does like puncture the whole system. Yeah, no, when I was in government, I heard like, I, like I was constantly trying to figure out like, what can we learn more about what the hell is happening in North Korea? And one of the things I learned, Tommy, is like, these DVDs would get smuggled into North Korea, these South Korean soap operas. Again, not by us. I'm not saying like just, you know, because like people want the content. And the thing that blew people's minds is like, what? look at these nice apartments they're living in. Like Seoul yeah. looks like that. They just, they, it wasn't that they were that into soap operas, that they were like, they've been told about how much more impoverished the South Koreans were than them. And they just see these people in like nice apartments. And, and if you take it to K-pop, I mean, you're seeing people like, happy, like expressing themselves like freely in every way, shape or form. If it's a video, like you're seeing them like out in the club or something yeah, dancing. And, yeah. and, and yeah, like to, to me, this is like the longer term vulnerability to, to, to the North Koreans. Uh, um, now the Chinese are trying to like perfect some capacity to have certain culture get in and to be so sophisticated, they can block certain things. But um, given the proximity of South Korea to North Korea, and given the fact that K-pop is kind of the number one global music phenomenon, I think he's going to have a hard time uh, keeping that out. Yeah, good luck with that, pal. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, so two last stories. We, I promise to, uh, you know, we're going to spend a little time dunking on assholes. So we've talked about uh, Jair Bolsonaro before, the president of Brazil. He's an idiot. He's a right-wing authoritarian. So for some reason, he decided to board a plane to greet some of his supporters. Now, it turns out the people that liked him were sitting up front in first class in the more expensive area, but the folks in back and coach were not quite as happy to see President Bolsonaro. Here's what it sounded like. <laughs> I mean, like, like you know, this guy, like it's the, all these fucking guys like Bolsonaro, who put themselves out as like these populists, the men, man of the people, like bullshit, you know, like, yeah. you know, you've got like, yeah, you're the man of some people who are assholes and then some rich people who like, you know, you take care of cause you're corrupt. But like most people feel like the people in coach did like get the fuck off the plane, man. Yeah, like you screw were, things up here. I wish we had the video. Obviously it's a podcast. We can't, uh, one woman was literally flipping him the bird and yelling, get out Bolsonaro genocidal <laughs> maniac. Like nobody's pulling punches anymore. They're not scared no. of this guy. No, no, um, that's the thing. And Brazilians like don't don't mess with Brazilians. Like, no, they're uh, it's a, it's a it's an intense uh, political culture. Okay, last segment. This one's just a little bit of a loss in translation. So, I think Pod Save the World listeners know that Mike Pompeo uh, was a terrible Secretary of State, but they may not know that he is also 
just embarrassingly bad on Twitter. So today he tweeted the following, calling all unapologetic Americans to join me and become a pipe hitter. P-I-P-E-H-I-T-T-E-R. Most of the world's who responded to his tweet seemed to think that was a very surprising reference to crack. Was that a 420? Was that a 420? Yeah. I don't know what he was talking about. Mike (laughs) Pompeo seems to think it means proud to be an American. I don't know, Ben. Maybe the solution is uh, Mike needs to log off and go away and just not be part of our political system ever again. I don't know. That's an idea. I just, at some point, somebody somewhere is going to have to explain to me the appeal of this man to anybody. I mean, he's, He's clearly like he's like nails on a chalkboard difficult to physically look at and listen to because he's so smug and arrogant in all of his presentation. This is a man who's so arrogant that like his is like formal slogan for the State Department was like swagger, you know, Yes, it um, it, which not exactly like quiet and intense diplomacy, you know, no. um, <laughs> uh, but like it's also not exactly like kind of the ethos of the foreign service. Right. Um, no. And, and but also like he's. He's like, we've talked about this, but like, what, where is the constituency? Who are the pipe hitters? Who are the, the Pompeo, <laughs> who are the Pompeo pipe hitters? Like, who are they? Like, describe to me who is like standing Mike Pompeo. I mean, it, like maybe the staff at the, at FDD, like the, like the, the, the foreign funded uh, yes. anti-Iran deal think tank crowd in DC. Like if that's your whole constituency for running for president of the United States, like good luck taking that out for a swing. But apparently, uh, you know, uh, like the pipe hitters, like, you know, will, will, will have their chance. I just would love to have just get my hands on the email chain of the approval process. It's like, yeah, yeah, Mike, uh, tweet out the, the pipe hitter thing. That's a that's a real winner. Uh, OK, when we come back, we will have my interview with Yair Rosenberg. We're going to talk about the new Israeli coalition, what it means for U.S.-Israeli relations, what it means for the Palestinian people. So stick around for that. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. 
To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. I am so excited to welcome to the show Yair Rosenberg. He is a senior writer at Tablet Magazine. He covers the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. He also has a fantastic Substack that you should check out. It's yair.substack.com. Uh, Yair is a very hot name right now, Y-A-I-R. You should all learn about it. It's having a renaissance. Uh, but it's just a great site. It's a fantastic resource. And he's one of the people I turn to when I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on uh, in Israeli politics. So Yair, thanks so much for doing the show. My pleasure. So, Yair, I, like, I feel like I DM you frequently. We've been talking for years now, uh, often about Bibi Netanyahu. He's no longer the prime minister. Uh, I think that is, look, objectively great news for, for me, for the Israeli people, in my opinion, for the U.S., I think for the, the world. Uh, you know, there's a lot of questions about how this coalition uh, that replaced him will work. There's some concern that the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, is just as right-wing as Bibi Netanyahu on key issues. He said some really abhorrent things uh, about the Palestinian people in the past. He has uh, been a leader of the settler movement. He's been opposed to a two-state solution. Given that context and sort of given the broader coalition that's now in place, how do you think people should be thinking about like the the basic political orientation of this new government as a whole. Yeah. So to answer that, we've got to take like a quick step back, just to understand how we even got here, which yeah. is that, you know, Israel, you, people may remember had, you know, what, four elections in two years. Um, and this was the result of Israel having two different con conflicting things going on. One was an anti-Netanyahu majority uh, in terms of the voting public, but then a whole, none of the anti-Netanyahu majority uh, could actually agree on anything else other than the fact that they wanted Netanyahu gone. So you had all these anti-Netanyahu parties that disagreed on everything from socialism to capitalism to LGBT rights, right to the Palestinians. Um, and so you had an election after election where Netanyahu didn't have enough people to create a new government, but the opposition couldn't get its act together to create their own. Um, and what changed is that Yair Lapid, um, the Israeli opposition leader this time around, but not in previous rounds, uh, managed to actually get everyone together and on the same page and form some sort of crazy coalition, left, right, center, settlers, Arabs, socialists, capitalists, they're all in it. Um, and basically just in order to push Netanyahu out of office and put a new government into office. Um, but of course, now, as you said, you end up with this government that's uh, quite Frankensteinian. Um, it doesn't seem to agree on anything other than Netanyahu and Netanyahu's gone. Um, and in order to make it work, in order to sort of get some right-wing parties to join this coalition along with everybody else, the center and the left and the Arabs, uh, Lapid, even though he had the most seats in the coalition, had to give the first two years of the prime ministership out of four uh, to Naftali Bennett, right? This guy who's a former head of the umbrella settler body in Israel, who is a, an indoctrinaire right-wing nationalist, religious nationalist, someone who has advocated for a very long time annexing, say, 60% of the West Bank. Um, and that was in order to basically create the coalition in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. But they basically put in a whole bunch of rules to basically make it impossible for Bennett to actually do most of the things that he would have done if he was prime minister with actually the power state that Netanyahu had. Uh, so basically, any, both Bennett and Lapid have, have vetoes on everything uh, in the coalition. So literally nothing can get done unless they both agree. Uh, so obviously no annexation of the West Bank is going to happen. Bennett has acknowledged this. He says, we're going to have to defer a lot of our dreams and just focus on governing about the, on the things that people agree upon. Um, and at the same time, you're unlikely to see dramatic steps 
on, say, a two-state solution because Bennett's probably going to say, I don't want to see that either. Um, and so what you're starting to see from this government, at least on this front, on the Palestinian front, is discussions of ways to sort of shrink the points of friction with the Palestinians, right? ways to sort of shrink the points of friction with the Biden administration, with Democrats in, in, you know, and generally with the international community, with the Europeans, right, saying that Netanyahu pursued a very confrontational policy on all of these fronts. Uh, and we're going to start taking into account the input that other actors give us. We're not always going to agree, but we're going to try uh, to end up somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to try. So you're not going to see some sort of, I mean, never say never with the Middle East. Um, I don't want to have a soundbite where I look like a total idiot. Um, but, you know, it seems unlikely that in the next you know, four years, you're going to see some match of dramatic shifts. But what you won't see is also the sorts of things that Bibi was playing with, which is say, like, we're going to annex the West Bank, which is right. something he toyed with for quite some time. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the very, very small nutshell. But there's so much more that one could discuss about this coalition. Well, yeah, no, like I have a lot more questions for you. Look, and also, you know, sound bites where you look like a total idiot are my bread and butter. So please don't insult them uh, on this show. So you, you mentioned like three of these power brokers, right? There's Naftali Bennett, there's Yair Lapid, uh, and then there's Mansour Abbas. You talked a bit about Bennett. So who is Yair Lapid? Like, and, and why have you called him like the real power broker in this coalition? Yeah. So Yair Lapid got 17 seats uh, in the most recent Israeli election. Um, Bennett got seven. Right? That's a very big difference. Um, not only that, Yair Lapid basically ran the entire electoral strategy for the anti-BB bloc. He went out and did this very weird thing where he said, we have enough seats. My party is going to do well enough in the election, right? If you want to vote for other left-wing parties or center parties or center-right parties that are anti-Netanyahu, please do that. Don't try to make my party bigger uh, because that actually won't help, right? We need to get all these, these other parties into the Knesset. If they got too few seats, they wouldn't have made it in, right? The Arab party that's in the Knesset just barely got in, the one that's in the new government. Um, and Lapid basically came up with that. He masterminded that um, and it succeeded. And so you have the leftist Socialist Merits Party in and you have the center left Labor Party in and you have Mansour Abbas's Ram Arab Party in and all of these smaller parties that made it possible to build this component coalition. Um, and he's the one who negotiated it. I mean, Bennett didn't sit down and like try to get all these people to sign on paper and figure out what everybody needed to be able to sign on to something. That was Lapid's job. Uh, and quite frankly, every time something big comes up that this coalition is going to do, Lapid is going to have to do the same thing again. He's going to have to go and canvas everybody and try to get everybody on the same page, right? And do this all over again. It's a very tough job. I wrote that yeah. when I when they were when he was first starting at the beginning of May, he got the mandate to try to form a government. Um, I said, if Lapid manages to solve the Rubik's Cube of Israeli politics, it will be one of the most remarkable feats in Israeli political history and the beginning of his problems, right? Because now the, now the hard <laughs> right. work begins, right? How right. do you actually get these people to productively govern? Now, there are things they can do. They can pass a budget, right? With right. the compromises that one does in budget wrangling. Netanyahu couldn't do that. In fact, that's what brought down his government. Um, they will be able to make reforms on things like religion and state, because although there's a lot of distinctions uh, between these different parties, they, there are no ultra-Orthodox religious parties, Jewish religious parties, hmm. in this coalition for the first time in quite some time. Um, and that will enable the government to liberalize things like kosher certification, it liberalized things like uh, who can pray at the Western Wall. This is not as big a deal, perhaps, to um, the general listener here, but to American Jews, um, it has been a very big goal to be able to have, for example, a, an egalitarian prayer space where men and women can pray together at the Western Wall, rather than a men's section and a women's section, and that's just your choices. Hmm. Um, and the ultra-Orthodox religious parties kept that status quo in place, and Netanyahu gave it to them. And this new coalition will reform a bunch of things on religion and state. It will reform things on the budget. It will do some other things that couldn't be done because of who Netanyahu was sort of in league with in his own coalition. Um, 
it also will, as we referenced earlier, it will be able to have a more productive relationship with uh, potentially with uh, an American administration, including a democratic administration. Because although they, for example, disagree with the Iran deal, they have absolutely no desire to blow up the U.S.-Israel relationship over it. They want to sort of be a constructive player at the table and say, okay, can we try to like make the deal a little bit better from our, by our lights, right? We recognize that this is basically a fait accompli. Right. And since this is going to happen, right, can we try to make it work better for everyone, including us? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, of course, what Obama wanted to do with Netanyahu, but Netanyahu did not want to do. Um, no. But both famously Lapid and so. Bennett, <laughs> yes, famously so. I mean, and it's like, whereas Lapid and Bennett, that's what they want to do. Now, right. BB, as we may discuss, wants to sort of salt the earth and make that hard for that to happen. So yeah, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Like I, I too was hopeful to see Yair Lapid say that he really wants to revive Israel's relationship with the Democratic Party, which you know speaks to sort of the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship, which has been more bipartisan. Before we get into to Bibi uh, trying to burn the house down on the way out, um, Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Ram yeah. Islamist Party, can you tell us about his background and, and how he ended up a part of this coalition? He seems to be uh, an incredibly savvy political actor. Yeah, so it's very interesting. And also, you know, quite frankly, it's one of those sort of media failures where basically I hope, and I assume this is happening now, every international paper is prepping a giant profile on Mansour Abbas um, because this is uh, an Arab politician in Israel who is now about to become the most powerful. Uh, he is now the most powerful Arab politician in Israeli history. Uh, and he did it by making a sort of audacious bet, which was that he was going to run explicitly on the platform of we will actually be part of in some way the next Israeli government. And that could be, he said, it could be right wing. He was coy about it. It could be right wing, it could be left wing. The point is who offers us the most? Mm-hmm. And in the past, the way it worked with uh, Israel's Arab parties is that they were non-Zionist or anti-Zionist and the Israeli Jewish parties were Zionist, meaning believe in the Jewish state, whereas these other parties are either not going to affirm a Jewish state or actively against it. And they all basically had this uh, estrangement, estrangement of convenience where the, the Zionists didn't want to serve with the non-Zionist Arab parties and the non-Zionist Arab parties didn't want to serve with the Zionist parties. And mm. it worked out somewhat well for everybody to sort of posture this way the entire time. Uh, but, you know, the people who lost, of course, were Israel's Arab citizens who didn't have representation in Israeli coalitions. Right. Um, and Abbas said, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to say that I will join. I will. I People actually thought he, what he would do is he would support a government from outside the coalition, which means he would sometimes give them their votes to keep them in power, but he wouldn't be part of the coalition. He then he and Lapid then surprised everyone and actually for the first time brought the party into the coalition, uh, which is something that's never happened in Israeli politics before. Um, and in exchange, Abbas secured a bunch of guarantees, a lot of funding uh, for the Arab uh, community in Israel those citizens who go by uh, Arab Israeli, some go by Palestinian citizens of Israel. There are different uh, terms that they accept. Um, he um, ensured the freezing of certain laws that were basically used to demolish unauthorized um, construction by Arabs um, in various parts of Israel that basically were basically being you know, enforced mostly against Arab communities and not necessarily against Jewish communities. And he got them to freeze that law for years. And hopefully he wants to reform it. We'll see if that happens. Um, so different things like that. Um, but the idea is, is that uh, for the first time, there is uh, an Arab player in Israeli politics, somebody who is on the nightly news, who is speaking uh, for that community, and also someone who is delivering uh, for that community explicitly. Um, yeah. And this can have some real reverberations in the future in Israeli politics, because if you look at the history of turnout in Israel, um, the Arab turnout traditionally lags behind uh, the overall general population turnout, which is mostly Jewish. And that makes perfect sense, because if you don't think your party is actually going to serve in a coalition, um, it's not that big a deal to vote. It's more of a protest right. thing. Right. Um, but a lot of people turned out to vote for Mansour Abbas, 
Um, and a lot of people, a lot of Arabs polled in Israel now say they actually want their politicians to play ball and serve in Israeli government. Um, and if they start seeing that happening and they start getting deliverables from a democratic system, well, then more of them may turn out. And then you might start to see the percentage of Arab votes tick up towards the percentage of Jewish votes. And that creates more seats in the Knesset. It's literally a mathematical thing. There are many more people voting. More seats exist now that are being supported by people who are more inclined towards a centrist or left-wing alliance or towards a right-wing alliance that is willing to take seriously uh, the needs of the Arab community in Israel. Yeah. Um, and so that's like a, that's a little of the high stakes that Mansour Abbas is playing with. Right now, he looks like he's really, he's achieved it. Um, I should give you some a little bit of background. Where does this guy come from? Um, so he's the head of this party called Ram, which is one of several Arab parties in Israel. It's a conservative religious party. In order to make some of the compromises he did to get into the coalition, he actually had to consult with a religious council um, mm. to get approval for things. This is like one of these like only in Israel things. They're also... Jewish ultra-Orthodox religious parties that do a similar thing. Um, and they gave him, him their blessing to do things like this. He comes out of something called the Islamic movement, which in Israel, which is what it sounds like, which is a religious movement that spreads Islam. Uh, but it has two, it has basically two, a division between a northern branch and a southern branch. The northern branch has been entangled with various different factions that are associated with terrorism and Hamas, right? But the southern branch is much more conciliatory and seeks change and reform within the democratic process. They condemn Holocaust denial, they support a two state solution. Uh, and, and Mansour Abbas comes out of that stream. Um, and that's basically the role that he's been playing now, what he's been like part of this coalition. Um, He's been speaking out against, you know, sort of racism in Israeli society and bigotry and saying things that don't bring us together are things that we shouldn't be doing, uh, which yeah. actually dovetails a lot with the sort of things that Lapid is saying. So you can see how they, in the end, got along. Uh, one yeah. of the interesting things Abbas said was that he was courted by Netanyahu. Netanyahu offered him the moon um, also to try to get him into his coalition. It didn't work for two reasons. Um, one was that the racist party that Netanyahu also midwiped into the Knesset turned to Netanyahu and said, no, 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 what part of the, you know, our manifesto did you not understand? We are racist. We will not sit with an Arab party in the government. So Netanyahu couldn't yeah. get them both to sit there. But the second reason um, was that uh, Abbas said, yeah, I think Netanyahu offered me a little more than the coalition, the current coalition, but I didn't believe he'd give it to me, whereas these guys I trust, right? right. I think these guys will actually deliver. Yeah. Um, and Lapid knows that he has to deliver, I think, for the Arab community in Israel if he wants to maintain this alliance. Yeah, hoisted by your own petard, Bibi. Well, I mean, look, that, that, that future prospect you described there of a more diverse, more representative government is, is really an exciting one. Um, but let, let's talk about Bibi. Uh, so there was this vote on Sunday. You know, Ben and I talked a bit about it earlier. It was unbelievably acrimonious. You had members of parliament who are Netanyahu allies booing Naftali Bennett. Uh, Yair Lapid ended up not giving a speech because he said he didn't want to embarrass his 86-year-old mother who had traveled down for this uh, event. Uh, you know, people were getting ejected from, from the room. Um, it was a mess. And then Bibi Netanyahu gave this speech where he just sort of like burned down the place, talked about all the times he gave the middle finger to the United States and told American presidents, specifically Barack Obama, to go fuck himself, which, uh, you know, to me, uh, reinforced all the reasons why I think that uh, American presidents should be willing to criticize Netanyahu. But I digress. But so Netanyahu's not going anywhere, right? He's still a member of parliament. He's going to try to claw his way back into power. W what did you make of this this scene and this closing message about like sticking it to the Americans and blah, blah, blah. I mean, is that an effective message in Israeli politics? Um, that remains to be seen. I don't actually think that particular message is. Um, I do think, yeah, that's something that's really important to underscore that, again, as we've been saying over and over, Israel, unlike America, is a parliamentary democracy. That's why you have to pick, like when Nitin 
and now loosens. He doesn't just go away, right? He becomes the leader of the opposition. Uh, and that's a, a, you know, a very powerful bully pulpit in its own right. Um, he is a, a political leader now uh, still in Israel. He is just a different political leader. You know, uh, when foreign dignitaries come, they're going to visit him too. Yeah. Um, and just like, you know, you to understand the current coalition, it's a parliamentary democracy. It's a coalition. And so you can look at the guy who's in the front like Bennett, but you really got to look at all the people behind it. Right. And those are like center and left wing ministers. And that tells you what Bennett's freedom of action is. Mm-hmm. Um, but to return to Netanyahu, um, he definitely was trying to salt the earth between um, the American government and the new Israeli government, uh, because it would actually be quite bad for him if they started getting along better, because he said that uh, what's necessary is the sort of um, partisan um, caustic of approach that he's taken. And that I did this because it was necessary for Israel's security and its survival and so on. And if it turns out that that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that these countries can get along and they can compromise a little bit, right? And the sky does not fall. Right. That's a real, you know, rebuke to Bibiism. Um, And so he doesn't want that to happen. Um, Something else that I wonder if we'll see him try to do is also see him try to salt the earth between the new government and the Republican Party, which has been very closely identified with Netanyahu, particularly during the Trump years. And they're seeing their guy go out of power. And so what does he, you know, what message does he send to them? Does he say, well, you know, you know, you need to support Israel no matter what government is in power and you should like work with this current government? Or does Netanyahu say, um, well, you know, they're going to be gone soon. I'll figure out a way to topple this government. It's pretty fractious already. And then I'll be back. Right. So, you know, they're kind of pretenders. Don't really pay attention to them. Um, and again, being pro BB is being pro Israel, right? That sort of message, yeah. right? And it's going to be interesting to see which of those messages resonates more, whether it's being pro Israel means being pro who's in power and who the Israelis have chosen, right? Versus being pro Israel is being pro BB. Which of those Republican stakeholders choose? Yeah. Um, and we started, we've seen both, but we've seen some, you know, Republicans already start congratulating the new government and saying, we look forward to working with you. And then we'll see people like Matt Getz tweeting um, that, you know, this whole government is just united by BB hate and they're going to, you know, persecute Netanyahu, but he's going to be back because they don't have anything holding them together, uh, which is something we should probably talk about, right? Will this government yeah. stick around with all this fracture stuff, right? So we're going to see that break, I think, in the Republican Party. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, Matt, Matt Gates is, uh, probably should worry about his own prosecution and not uh, allege that this government is going to try to railroad Netanyahu. What There are all these corruption cases against Bibi Netanyahu. And by the way, like on this broader point of like trying to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Israel, I was struck by Netanyahu's tone as compared to Yair Lapid. I mean, I do think that like Republicans and Democrats are, when they talk about the U.S. commitment to Israel, they really do mean the country and they don't mean to the man, Bibi Netanyahu, unless you're currently living uh, at Mar-a-Lago. But I don't know. This is not a bet I would take if I were Netanyahu, but I digress. So the corruption cases... Bibi, you know, he tried to pass all these legislation to protect himself from prosecution. It seemed like maybe one of the reasons he was clinging to power so desperately. Does his ouster uh, from the the prime ministership change the process or the timeline for any of these cases at all? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, so Israel has an independent judiciary, the the cases of the system. And uh, basically, there is nothing that uh, anyone's going to do to affect it. It's going to move at the pace it's going to move. Um, there's a tremendous amount of documentation because there are multiple cases. There's like mm-hmm. years and years of investigative materials. And Bibi has very good lawyers who are vetting everything and squeezing it within an inch of its life. So this thing can drag out for years, uh, which is also part of Netanyahu's book because he's like, okay, so this is a setback for me. But if I can get this government to fall, I can always come back into power and then we're back to mm-hmm. where we were. Um, and so 
this is far from his, his, from his perspective, and I don't think he's wrong, this is far from over. Um, and it's also why, if you look, Netanyahu did a lot to sort of delegitimize this government and attack its uh, um, bona fides. Uh, but in the end, he handed over power. He did not uh, try to, you know, January 6th it. Um, he was asked, uh, walking out of parliament the other, after Bennett was sworn in by a reporter, right, will there be a peaceful transfer of power? Will you meet with Bennett? Um, uh, and he, like, looked at this guy, and he said... <laughs> No, there's going to be a revolution, right? And then he just stopped. He's like, "What an idiotic question!" Yeah, he right? made and fun then of he just the reporter, <laughs> right? And he's like, "He's like really like he's like I'm not trying to like burn this country down, but that's because of course Netanyahu wants to rule the country, right? He doesn't want to destroy it. Um, and this is a difference. This is there are many analogies one can make, and I've made the mm-hmm. fight between say someone like Trump and Netanyahu, American politics, Israeli politics. But you know Netanyahu in the end, this is the difference between Trump, you know, a man-child narcissist who cares about no one but himself, and Netanyahu, like many other right-wing populists, who has a vision for his country and a definition of success that he's actually yeah. working towards. Um, and that makes him so much more of a formidable politician in various ways. Yeah. Um, and so Netanyahu still plans to come back and to pursue that vision, and he sees this as a setback. Uh, but he doesn't see this as the end. Um, and he's running, uh, you know, the opposition right now. Um, and he's going to try to pick apart this coalition, hit every pressure point that he possibly can and try to make it collapse as soon as he can make it collapse. Because in parliamentary democracies, if you can't uh, put together 61 seats uh, to keep your government in power, right, in the case of Israel, with, which has 120 seats in parliament, right, you can no longer govern. Uh, and then we're back to elections again. Um, and then Netanyahu can try to win one. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so... Right before we started recording, you know, I, I saw these videos of far right Israelis marching through East Jerusalem in this annual parade that had been delayed. Um, some of them were chanting death to Arabs. Some of them were chanting the villages should be burned. I mean, again, this thing was supposed to happen last month, but it got pushed because of the the tense situation in Sheikh Jarrah and then, you know, because uh, Hamas rocket fire. But like clearly this parade, this kind of language is incitement, you know, it's incitement happening in in the light of day with journalists filming it and the police aren't shutting it down. There's real concern about another uh, flare-up of tensions like we saw in Sheikh Jarrah or more rocket fire from Hamas. I mean, look, I don't think you or I have all that much hope that a Naftali Bennett-led government is going to lead to uh, a, a two states or a Palestinian state, even though as much as we hope it would. But do you have any hope that this new administration is willing or able to try to like keep a lid on this kind of activity and make day-to-day life better for the Palestinian people. Because I think that goal just, you know, gets, gets lost in these, these conversations. And look, that's on me for asking you a million questions about uh, the U S Israeli relationship. But like, that is the backdrop behind all the tensions we saw last month and the fighting and and the, the death toll uh, and something I think we all would love to prevent. Yeah, it's not something that goes away just because people are no longer shooting rockets or dropping bombs from airplanes. Um, and yeah. it's important to continue to think about that and to focus on it. And hopefully the Biden administration, that's something that now they realize yeah. they can yeah. engage upon with the new government. Um, yeah, so when you see something like that march, I think it's really instructive to look at it because this is a march that was supposed to happen and that didn't happen, but they purposely rescheduled it and they basically ended up doing it right when this new government came in. They chanted racist chants. Um, not everyone there, let's, this is important, right? Of course, right, there are a variety of people at this march, but there are always racists at this march. And the organizers not only tolerate them, they basically look the other way, if not sympathize with them. Um, and it was really awful to see people, how many young kids were chanting this stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, it's horrible to see a 15-year-old boy chanting death to Arabs. It's just, you know, exactly. it's, it's depressing. And so you have this sort of thing going on, and it's purposely happening right now. And they're also holding up signs that say, Naftali Bennett is a traitor, right? This guy who was a right-wing politician until two yeah. minutes ago. 
Um, and what it is, is it's, it, people ask, how can you have that? And at the exact same time, just install the first Israeli government with an Arab party in it, right? As though, you know, and people say that seems like a contradiction. Um, but of course it's not. And I think it should be understandable to us in America why it's not, which is that whenever you have a push towards more integration, you are absolutely going to have a racist backlash. And those two things go together. Um, and these people wanted to have their march and they weren't going to let it be postponed. And especially after this new government came in and especially after Naftali Bennett decided, right, who they thought was their guy said, I'm gonna make a government with Arabs in it, right? So now they feel betrayed, right? And they feel like the people are, you know, that the stars are aligning against them. And so they get that much louder, right? And they get that much angrier. And I think we're going to see more of this sort of back and forth. And part of it is going to make someone like Naftali Bennett have to choose, right? And he's going to look at this and say, you know, are you with Mansoor Abbas and the people in your coalition right, who built this thing together that is built, right? If you look at their speeches, they really said, we want to build this on trust, on sort of the things that Netanyahu basically trashed mm -hmm. during his time on like you know, trying to find consensus and healing and unity in Israeli society as best we can, right? That just can't be reconciled with what you see in the streets today, right? You couldn't do it. Um, and in the end, Naftali Bennett's going to have to think, right, who am I, like, which side of those people am I on? Um, and like, if I had to guess, and I, you know, this is one of those sound bites that I may look like an idiot. I think he actually, um, for both personal reasons and also self-interest reasons, will realize that he is on the side of, I, you know, I'm, these people are not my people. In part yeah, because there's nothing so. he could possibly do at this point to win their votes. That's the self-interest argument, mm -hmm. right? These people hate his guts. They were chanting racist chants while, you know, holding signs about how bad he is. Um, he's never going to win them back, right? But also because in a very unusual, like an odd way, and this is a much longer conversation about Naftali Bennett, uh, who is a, a man of many contradictions. Um, Naftali Bennett wants uh, to be a conciliator. Um, when he was the head of the Settler Council um, for a short period of time, one of the reasons he eventually lost that job is he went and, and uh, showed up at Israel's 2011 social justice protests that were against inequality and tycoons and uh, the high cost of living. This was a left-wing movement. Uh, and he showed up because he wanted to be in dialogue with those people. Uh, when Israel had protests against uh, police abuse of the Ethiopian Jewish Israeli community, um, which has some parallels to some Black Lives Matter activism in America. Um, Bennett, again, was like the right wing member who showed up to start. Hmm. Um, he wants to bring these people together. But the question is, is does his conciliatory approach include the Arab community? And so hmm. far, his government does. Right. Yeah. So does that also include over more his broader political approach? And there are ways to be and there have been in Israeli history right-wing Israeli leaders and right-wing Israelis, like the outgoing president, Ruben Rivlin, right, who embrace the Israeli-Arab community within a right-wing framework, right? That could be a more like, we want to have some sort of confederation with the Palestinians in the future, right? There are different approaches that are different from the two-state solution, for example, that see both populations living equally. Uh, and Bennett's gonna, gonna be, you know, faced with this choice. And the question will become, which will he choose? Of course, after two years, then we have Lapid and we know which way he chooses. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the next four years. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is why I like talking with you because look, I think in, uh, in Washington and around this set of issues in general, I think, uh, cynicism is often, uh, thought of as, as being smart or savvy, but you know, there is this potential silver lining. There is reason to be hopeful here, uh, about a better future for Palestinians and Israeli people after Netanyahu is gone. So thank you for doing the show. Everyone check out yair.substack.com. Follow him on Twitter, Tablet Magazine. What else do we want to plug here? Um, that sounds like it. You know, I, my hope <laughs> is that now that Yair Lapid is an international figure, people will finally learn how to pronounce my name. Um, we can all work on that. Uh, but at least spelling well, how, it is How do they get it wrong? Do they call um, you Yair? I mean, it's, to be fair, it looks like air. So I become mm. Yair, right? The, if I yeah. ever started a podcast, Fresh Yair is right off there. Ooh, Fresh Yair. 
That's great. Um, Trademark that would that. just encourage all the wrong things. <laughs> um, everyone will then mispronounce it forever. Um, but, you know, we have a vested interest in, uh, in uh, Yair's Yair, who are not Yair Netanyahu. Uh, don't Google him. Ugh, um, being the, the predominant Yair uh, <laughs> uh, out there. So the, the, the Yair rankings have gone, you know, have been adjusted in, in our favor for now. Well, congrats on that. And thank you again for doing the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks again to Yair for joining the show. Uh, ben, uh, after this little chit-chat of ours, we're going to hear an excerpt from your audio book. So that is exciting. I would also love to know, you're in New York. You got big plans? You going to go to the museum? You do something fun? Well, first of all, uh, on the book, I do want to say, like, I recorded it. I read it. Um, and mainly because oh, the, the main feedback I got, I didn't read my first book, and the main feedback I got from Worldos mainly when I was on, like, book tour on my first book was like, hey, man, like, who's this actor reading your book? You know, like... Uh, which is a pretty good point. If like I'm a podcaster, I should at least be able to do my book. <laughs> That's, okay, um, fair. <laughs> which I enjoy doing. Um, and 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 this book, this gives you a little flavor of kind of the travel ethos of the book. It's it's a it's an excerpt from the very beginning. Cool. Um, but yeah, New York. I mean, I'm going to catch up with my parents, but like, it just opened here today, just like it did in California. So, like, I'm thinking of going to a Mets game. Like, nice. uh, Like, I'll be hitting all the the hot playground spots in central park with my kids like definitely hit up like a couple of museums see some friends i haven't seen in a while it's gonna feel like a uh, normal life in is new york broadway city like, open? so springsteen is the first one back um huh. you know he has his broadway show like stuff is coming back here it's super exciting to see like you know new york which i was once the epicenter of this whole pandemic is now like feels almost normal that's cool well have fun there Good to see you, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Cool. Thanks, guys. See you. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. I walked aimlessly around the sprawling city of Yangon, a blanket of heavy heat over me, buying knockoff Nikes for a few bucks to make it easier on my feet. I went to a pagoda and sat staring at a Buddha, waiting to feel something. I walked into a U.S. government-funded library where I'd been a guest of honor a couple of years before. Now, anonymous to young Burmese buried in books and screens. Then I conducted workshops in the capital city of Nepida to help the Myanmar negotiating team prepare, sharing lessons I'd learned while negotiating reconciliation between the United States and Cuba. The civilians took earnest, copious notes. The stern-faced military men in drab green uniforms wrote nothing down. Afterward, I joined a meeting with Aung San Suu Kyi, dissident-turned-state counselor, at her residence. For the first time in my several meetings with her, we were asked to take off our shoes inside the Buddhist home, a reminder of the Burmese Buddhist nationalism that had become more predominant in recent years. Within a matter of months, the Burmese military that had once imprisoned Suu Kyi would pursue a campaign of ethnic cleansing against a Muslim minority, the Rohingya. 
a million people were driven into neighboring Bangladesh. Through it all, Suchi would remain silent. People wondered at her fall, from Nobel Peace Laureate of the early 90s to international pariah. But it made a certain kind of sad sense to me. A survivor from a country on the periphery of power in the world. She once surfed the wave of democracy that accompanied the end of the Cold War. She rocketed to international attention in 1989, the year that the Berlin Wall came down, by leading a democratic movement protesting the military government. By 2017, she was doing what she felt she needed to do to survive in a world where nationalism ran amok. Her own journey, from democracy icon to tacit collaborator in brutality fueled by Buddhist nationalism and rampant anti-Rohingya disinformation on Facebook, didn't cut against the currents of history. It drifted in the wake of events in the wider world. In April 2017, I went to Milan with Barack Obama. He was there to speak about climate change, a few weeks after Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The rhythm of the trip felt familiar. A private plane, a block of hotel rooms, secret service agents. But the plane was a fraction the size of Air Force One. There were only a handful of hotel rooms and agents. And unlike the crush of responsibilities that used to follow me, I had very little to do. I accompanied Obama on a private tour of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings, peering down at bold lines that improbably anticipated the machines of the future. Helicopters and missiles, the machinery of war that we'd presided over for eight years. Dusty volumes, hundreds of years old, lined the walls of the library. From human creations like this, the Renaissance had emerged, paving the way for the pursuit of scientific inquiry and cultivation of a more enlightened Western civilization that now felt under assault. Back at the hotel, throngs of Italians waited outside Obama's hotel. I told him that he remained the most popular politician in the world. No, he corrected me. I'm one of the biggest celebrities in the world now. He didn't mean it as a good thing. Progressive change relegated to cultural celebrity. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. 